Welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. My name is Cars Fox and I'm your current host for this season. You are currently listening to Legacy Part 4. If you missed Legacy Part 1 through 3, I encourage you to listen to them in order as all episodes from this series are interconnected. In this part, I am joined by guests Dr. Elizabeth Escobedo, Dr. Lisa Martinez, and Dr. Johnny Ramirez to discuss the impact of student activism at the University of Denver as it pertains to the creation of the critical race and ethnic studies minor and soon-to-be major. Many of my interviews discuss the demand made by the Black Student Alliance in 2016 to create an ethnic studies department and that made by the recent collective, Righteous Anger Healing Resistance, in 2020 to create a critical race and ethnic studies department. While an official apartment for critical race and ethnic studies has not yet been realized, the critical race and ethnic studies minor has been implemented. Within these courses, the students that I interviewed expressed how critical race and ethnic studies courses, or CRESS, gave them the opportunity to learn about themselves, to use their voice, and connected them with professors who continue to be their mentors even after they graduate. To begin, Dr. Escobedo and Dr. Martinez discuss the beginnings of the CREST minor and the impact of student activism in this regard. So I think that there's been demands for Black studies and ethnic studies. The, the name has sort of varied over the years depending on the historical time period. Um, there's been those demands for quite some time on the DU campus. And it's perhaps not altogether surprising that we really start seeing students demanding their education to be more inclusive and to put race front and center in the mid 1960s on the DU campus. And I've heard stories that, you know, one of our, our DU alumni, Condoleezza Rice, that her father actually taught on the DU campus and had a black experience course that was pretty transformative um, for the students therein. And this is maybe that moment where we really begin to see students coming forward and saying, we want our communities represented. We wanna see ourselves represented in our education. Um, and, and then at various times throughout DU's history, we had students coming forward and, and demanding ethnic studies programs of sorts. Um, I think, for us more recently, things really came to a head um, when we began to see students having specific demands for a curriculum dedicated to race, be that critical race studies, be that ethnic studies in 2016. And there were a number of students who came forward and centered demands. Um, and one of the demands was this, this change in, or addition to the DU curriculum. Um, and what is interesting is that prior to that, you also had a number of faculty who were really pushing the administration to think about this too. And so around 2014, you had a cohort come together looking to create a, a a major program called RISC, R-I-S-C, so Race, Inequality, and Social Change. And um, Dr. Romero, Dr. Pesson were a part of this initial team really leading that initiative. And they did so much work compiling the courses that were already being taught um, through a, a lens of race and ethnicity reaching out to those faculty, seeing what classes they were going to offer in the future, um, 
thinking about the types of students that would wish to take these classes um, and asking DU students what they wanted. And time and time again in these questionnaires, it was clear that students wanted to see ethnic studies represented in their program of study. And so you have student activism and then faculty efforts really coming together. Um, and that work for risk was really the blueprint for and the foundation for the initial critical race and ethnic studies or CRESS proposal that we eventually put together and um, started working with um, then Dean McIntosh and then senior associate Dean Tag, um, who were really supportive of getting some sort of ethnic studies or race studies program um, started within cause the college of arts humanities and social sciences and they felt that this would really read the heart of the initiative because so many of the classes that were being taught through these specific lenses were housed within that college and so um, on the other side of this you also had the larger framework of the office of diversity equity and inclusion actually had a different name when it was being run by um, frank tuitt uh, Tom Romero is his role in assistant provost for IE research and curricular initiatives. And then Lisa came in, was giving us a lot of feedback um, and consultation work. We came together and we put a proposal together. We had community forums. Um, so people from the community were able to comment on the drafts. And eventually we were able to work through administrative channels, which we know, you know, can take a long time, um, but you keep at it and you chip away. Um, and that includes undergraduate counsel. We were able to get that minor proposal accepted. But, you know, these things matter when students are demanding it. And it was clear that faculty had the expertise to teach these classes. And in fact, they already were. And students were taking these classes. They were tremendously popular. And so it made sense to put these together into a proposal that created an official line of academic study. And so that's how the CRESS minor officially started in winter of 2019. And students were able to declare that minor. I served as the inaugural CREST minor director. And then we had the incredibly talented faculty, like Professor Martinez, who's here today, like Professor Ramirez, who's here today, who were able to teach these classes that students were excited to take. Um, they were able to get the word out and recruit more minors. We didn't have a budget. And so it was difficult at times, you know, how do you do something when you don't have the, those financial roots? Unfortunately, that's a really significant reality of programming being successful. Um, but ultimately, we had faculty from 14 cause slash departments slash programs, as well as classes that were being offered in the Corbell School and Margaret School of Education at the Sturm College of Law. And then we had faculty who were just fantastic advisors and who were saying, hey, you really should take this class. It's gonna blow your mind. It's gonna change how you view the world. Um, and indeed they did, right? The, the classes did. Um, and I think it was by fall 2020 that we had about 50 minors 
um, from a program who had just that had just started, you know, I, a year prior. That's happening at the same time that student activists and RAR are really taking off and saying, you know what, we want more. We want a department or we want a major. We want to see growth and capacity building. Um, and that this minor program is too good to remain as sort of a supplement to education. We want this to, to drive who we are as students and to, to thrive um, alongside the growth of the program. I so appreciate Professor Escobedo giving that history um, because as long as I've been here, I've been here since 2005, she's exactly right. There have always been these conversations, right, about doing something around uh, race and ethnic studies. And um, there were many points in which the idea seemed to gain a lot of traction only for something to happen and then it kind of fell to the wayside. Um, but I think what ultimately allowed us to be successful was sort of a, a couple of things, one being sort of a, a couple of really key critical folks. Um, Liz mentioned um, Tom Romero, Frank Tuitt, Sarah Pesson, um, who's, who's long been an ally of, of this kind of work, um, and also Liz. I mean, she, she would not say this um, herself, so I'll, I'll say it. I mean, she really was the driving force behind all of this. And that energy and that drive and that intent and motivation combined with um, uh, the former dean and associate dean in the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, um, I think those were really critical things in, in this actually coming to fruition. I'd like the right pieces, I don't want to say it fell into place because you know it was already there. Student demand was already there, but but it was just kind of all of the the right things coming together at the right time, the right leaders, the right people, the right conversations. Um, that was really what I think helped um, to move this forward. And so, so I was part of those conversations um, early on and at various points, but, but really the thrust of, of what um, would ultimately become the minor and eventually soon uh, the major uh, was really the work of, of Liz and Johnny and Tom and, and many others. Um, and, you know, I, I want to kind of go back to a couple of things, you know, the curriculum, or at least the, the seeds of the critical race and ethnic studies minor were already there, right? So I actually didn't know the history about Condoleezza Rice's father, John Rice, uh, teaching a class in the 1960s about the Black experience, right? So, so that was something, right? That was, that was one of the, the earliest seeds. Sort of fast forwarding, um, you know, that we know that there are a lot of courses, um, particularly in arts, humanities, and social sciences, but I think across campus as well, that naturally sort of lent themselves to, to being part of this minor. But it was a matter of, of formalizing that into the minor. So I think part of what made it successful and, and, and why I think administrators were willing to get on board was it, it wasn't an idea to start from scratch, right? Like we want to build this thing and oh, it's going to take a lot of work because it doesn't exist. The curriculum doesn't exist. The faculty who teach the curriculum um, don't yet uh, work at DU, right? I mean, it was already there. Um, and so it took, um, it took an effort just in terms of uh, formalizing that into, into what it is today. And, and even kind of taking a step back further, the fire was already there. Um, and I think that's certainly the case if we think about it specifically within the context of DU, but the fire was already there if we just think of, about where we are. I mean, I actually didn't know much of this history until I arrived in Denver, but you know, Denver has a very rich history of 
primarily Chicano activism, uh, but, but also other um, communities of color um, and other marginalized groups as well. And one of the things I remember learning early on was the fact that uh, the Crusade for Justice um, had its origins here in Denver. Um, it was founded by um, Rodolfo Corky Gonzalez, who was a DU student for a short time. Uh, he was un unable to pay for tuition, and so he left, um, I believe it was after maybe a year or so um, that he was at DU. And, you know, Gonzalez and others in, in starting the Crusade for Justice, um, in many respects, it was, I guess, many consider it to be a more militant branch of the Chicano um, rights movement. Um, but I think what was also really central um, to the crusade and, and just the, the movement here in Denver was the fact that youth were very much an integral part of that activism. Um, and so, uh, for example, Denver hosted the, the first Chicano uh, National Liberation Conference. Um, you know, youth were very much part of, of their activities and their activism. Uh, many of, of those children and grandchildren still, you know, have their roots in North Denver, where they were primarily located. And so, so the fire was already there, but, but so were a lot of the dynamics that I think sort of helped to give rise to a lot of the things that we saw, right, in, in sort of pushing for um, not only recognition as a minoritized people or community, but also, you know, um, political access, um, improving education for children, um, um, pushing back against police brutality and so forth. So all of those things were already there. Um, and I think uh, many of our students, um, especially those who grew up in Denver, but also in other parts of Colorado, you know, it, it, it seemed like many of them um, sort of grew up in, in, in similar traditions in terms of uh, being from marginalized communities and, and really trying to, to gain um, uh, justice and equity and access in whatever form. Um, and so, there, you know, there's still a very rich uh, activist community, um, particularly of young people, their various organizations. Um, the former organization known as Padres y Jóvenes Unidos, which is now Movimiento Poder, um, you know, youth were a central part, part of their vision as well. Um, and kind of going back to, to my experience, my first year at DU, um, I, I had the pleasure of, of, of having several students who were very much involved in some of these organizations, and they took that activist lens and applied it here at DU. And, and these were young people, young people students, um, who were very active and involved um, on campus in many of the student alliances, which has a lot of overlap in terms of, of who our current students are as well. Um, they were founders of all kinds of organizations on campus, including multicultural Greeks. Um, and so that's where I kind of see that crossover between what has sort of historically been happening um, here in Denver and in Colorado, and how that's then sort of um, made its way into our campus. And so I, I think that that was actually also uh, a really sort of pivotal moment, if you will, in terms of putting pieces in place that I think ultimately led to the founding of the Critical Race and Ethnic Studies program. Had it not been for many of these students, 
who said, hey, you know, we're a small portion of the university, but, but we're here and we want that visibility um, and, and really sort of bringing a lot of these issues to light. And, and they were quite successful um, and continue to be quite successful. And so, um, you know, I really credit them with, with helping to plant that seed as well in terms of compelling and, and motivating students to, to really being active on campus in whatever form that might look like, whether it's through student organizations or you know, actual activism, extra institutional kind of activism and change. Um, I think it really had a lot to do with, with, with some of these, um, I don't wanna call them earlier generations, but, but, but with these uh, young people who, who really were pivotal, I think, in, in helping to, to give voice to a lot of the student concerns, which are many of the ones um, that the Roar students and others um, used uh, as a vehicle to push for critical race and ethnic studies. Next, Dr. Johnny Ramirez walks me through the purpose and impact of crest courses on students at the University of Denver. A lot of when I reflect on on my my time and opportunity to build at DU, you know, it was more of like a divine um, kind of orchestration of how I showed up at the University of Denver because you know what as I was uh, kind of in my mind thinking, okay, I'm going to get my PhD. I just graduated. Now I'm going to go into the job market and see what the next steps are. And like where I was going to kind of build my career or start this path of, of now becoming a professor, right? And taking all the things that I dreamed about and envisioning in terms of just my teaching practice and research and also mentoring students. I didn't have no idea that my journey really was going to start at the University of Denver, that I was going to be able to like say, okay, I'm being called upon or given this opportunity to work at a private, predominantly white institution in Denver, Colorado, you know, being so born and raised and so rooted in LA. And Southern California, you know, um, having years of, of, of relationship building in community and on campus and to think, okay, now it's time for me to come to a new community, to a, a new university, and then kind of see what that looks like, right? Taking, taking into account that, you know, um, part of like that, that transition or, or, or building would be about learning, learning from my students, learning from the faculty there, because in my educational trajectory, I've never really had been in that environment of being at a private, predominantly white institution. Uh, started off at community college, you know, um, did my master's at a California state institution at Northridge, and then doing my PhD back at, at UCLA. So I think for me, a, a lot of it was just like really looking to wanting to learn, a genuine desire to wanting to learn because I figured that the only way that the impact, at least in, in my training, in terms of being an ethnic studies practitioner is gonna be about making sure that the curriculum and the pedagogy has that it's culturally responsive, that it's relevant to where my students are coming from. And that would be not only with students of color, but then now for my white students that we're gonna be there, that we're bringing their lived experiences, their experiential knowledge and their identities, that the classroom environments that I'd be trying to create is gonna look a lot different, I think, for them. So in, in 2019, I believe, is when I was given the opportunity to teach and be a part of the, the Crest Minor. And I taught this, um, you know, uh, basically for my dissertation, doing a history on uh, student activism and, and, and um, resistance and kind of looking from the 60s to the present. And it was in the uh, poli sci department. And I think there was an amazing opportunity because I remember walking in and seeing half of the group, a group of students there, like say 10 or 12 were students of color and then 10 and 12 were, were our white students at DU and thinking, okay, how is this really going to look like, you know, a place where we can find community, where we can, you know, have this circle 
and make it so that everyone feels seen, they feel acknowledged. And how can we, you know, again, engage in those courageous conversations that you're going to usually do when you're talking about race, gender, sexuality, you know, all those um, identities from an intersectional perspective are going to take a bit of like, you know, a lot more calling in versus calling out, right? And, um, and I remember that, that that experience, I think, for me was the spark. It was the beginning to, for me to kind of develop this hope of what could happen at the University in Denver, because that class in particular, like they all, the thing that united them, I think, was a genuine desire to want to learn from a different perspective, from a, from a gaze and from an epistemological perspective, from a praxis-driven perspective, from, 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 from BIPOC folks, from Black, Indigenous, people of color lens. And I think grounding the course or like saying, okay, you know, you're, you're coming from other disciplines and other spaces, but this is what an ethnic study space looks like. And I think I did a real good job of trying to give them research early on to everything to, to kind of get already the foundational kind of premise is going to be, this is not going to be like a traditional academic class at your university. <laughs> so let's, let's start from there, right? And then taking my students outside to do a land acknowledgement and sharing some of the the indigenous teachings, right? And um, different forms of, uh, of ancestral epistemology and knowledge and everything, like really just trying to bring in as much exposure was, was, was a lot of my kind of thing guiding light in was like, how can I just share with my students and then see how they make sense of it, see what connects, see what might be tr triggering, see what, what the class does as a community on its own. So I think that really was what, what was guiding, I think a lot of my pedagogy and kind of even course development was this desire to wanna to learn from my students and then just share the curriculum or the content from the courses. I do remember some, some uh, students initially telling me very early, um, thank you for being here. Thank you for creating these, these, these classroom environments because in these three or four years that I've been here, I've never spoken up as much as I have until I've really got into this class. And, and I really do feel like it is giving some of my, you know, my, my white colleagues, my, my friends, right. That, you know, giving them an opportunity to like learn and to tune into some of the experiences that are hard for me to explain or hard for me to share. And from the white students, I was getting, you know, thank you for being here as well. Thank you for being one of the, the first faculty of color, first Latino male, you know, teacher in their whole K through 12 education, right. Now they're getting exposed at a university. Um, thank you for creating these spaces so that students of color can teach, you know, or humbly share with us and build with us, you know. Um, so I think for me, like that, I think then really planted the seeds early on of kind of like building community in, in, in my classroom spaces that I think some of the student leaders then took as they stepped out and started to think about the roles that they were already in, that a lot of these student activists and role have already been really pushing um, their demands, and the changes that they want to see on campus. I think what the being in the, the Crest Minor courses did was potentially give them a glimpse of, okay, look at the look at the, the, the power or the transformative impact that can happen when in my classes at the university, I'm trained to be empowered to exercise my voice, to exercise these critical lenses and see what this looks like in praxis. This to me is what the learning that I want and that I want to pass on for my younger siblings or to the up and coming students in the community. So I think if anything, the fire was already there, but what, what the spaces, the Crest spaces did, in particular my courses, was give them a glimpse of the reality that what can be if this was given to all the students at DU. How would the campus racial and gender climate change if our students were walked into these Crest courses and these environments with curriculum, 
with, with a humanizing pedagogy and mentorship, how much would there be a shift at the university? And I think that was a lot of the vision and dreaming that they were having by being in the classes. And just, I think, further kind of um, uh, validated and, and really affirmed that the things that they want were demanding for and the things that they wanted that were important and can happen. And other universities are way ahead of DU on that mark. You know, we can look to them as models. So I think that that was really key. And then I, I think that the, a lot of in my courses, the final projects that I had the students um, kind of engage in that was very much praxis driven, like take this knowledge and information and then use it as a tool to like impact your campus or community. And that's where some other student activist leaders started to, to kind of like find their voice even in, in the research. So one being, of course, like would be a, a shared student that, that uh, Dr. Martinez and, and, Dr. Es, uh, and Dr. Escobedo had was Andrea Macias and how her archival work, that looking at the student resistance and the narrative and the legacy at DU so that now as students are organizing, they don't have to go through this whole remembering of what's going on that now that narrative is documented. She presented slides. She presented for students in my class and for community, right? Um, yeah, and, and then in, in my other class too, students did a zine and students were like, like saying, how can we now say, how can we creatively express and start to create uh, more um, opportunities for, for, you, for students to activate their voice, to, to creatively empower students or use it as an organizing tool uh, to do this work and kind of taking a page from the old school from uh, some of the earlier um, activists, in particular Chicana feminists and queer Chicana feminists of the movement that really uh, were using uh, printmaking uh, in the printmaking tradition, printing up their zines and getting the word out. So again, I, I would just have to acknowledge that I think all this work was kind of being there. They were doing the work in terms of their activism and their leadership development. I just think that now their voice and their kind of like empowerment and everything now was being a part of the, their learning environment, center, like front stage center. And I think that was probably like the biggest like push to get the students to say, hey, well, you know what? We need to really, you know, uh, kind of develop this collective so that we can come together and not be working in these silos. How can we take a page from community and come together and create the Righteous Anger, uh, anger Healing Resistance, the RAR collective? And I think about that was like, how could we, um, as faculty and students come together and, and, and share in that lifting of, of the demands at the University of Denver. After discussing the impact of student activism and the creation of the Crest Minor, along with the positive impacts of these courses on students, I asked my guests what the key takeaways from our time together are. One of the takeaways I would hope is that folks uh, recognize that when students engage in resistance and activism, that that's really coming from a place of love. Because what, what comes to mind really is like, you know, educational philosopher and theorist Paulo Freire. When Paulo Freire really talks about what it is when, when folks that have been marginalized, right? Or what he calls have been silenced, right? In their, in, you know, uh, socially, economically, politically within their communities at times and at the university, right? When that happens, there's this kind of innate, um, uh, how can I say spirit that gets created when, when, um, when, when students in particular want to see justice um, for themselves and in um, and, and at the university. I think what happens is sometimes students' resistance and activism gets read as all these radical students, all they want to do is just kind of uh, uh, be reactionary, um, 
you know, they just kind of want to lash out and they just want to march and protest. They want to disrupt and occupy. But all this is kind of driven with no sense of direction or wanting to come with solutions and change. So I want to dispel that, that myth off, off the base. I think one thing that folks have to recognize is that in students, just like as they're developing their academic skills, they're going to develop their leadership and, and activism skills as well. So students are learning while they're doing. And I think that's where a lot of times faculty or community mentors that might be activists too that do this work can be a resource to students developing. Because I've been in spaces, not so much at DU, but in other work mentoring student activists where sometimes there's tension within the organizing. You know, sometimes instead of, I, I would say like using some slang, instead of banging on the system, they end up banging on each other and it gets kind of crazy. <laughs> and, uh, or, or it gets a little bit, um, I would say toxic at times, right? Um, I think I think one of the strategies that was amazing at DU was the students wanting to embrace the healing justice lens. This idea that through healing, through checking in with each other and building community, that that's going to ground us in doing this work. That that almost like again to take a page maybe from like hip hop when uh, Nip Hustle, Nipsey Hustle recipe, he said the marathon continues. That this thing isn't a sprint. If you're talking about long systemic structural changes or building the communities or the spaces you want whether it's in community at the university, that, that's, that's a long journey like to get there. So I guess I would just say that like folks that wanna read student activism resistance and they wanna put a deficit perspective that students are just reactionary without like really planning and thinking, I think that's a big myth that really, that really needs to be challenged. Um, and I would say the second thing with the University of Denver, I think uh, in particular, I would have to pull from, from some of the research that says that uh, if, if the University of Denver wants to support students of color or underrepresented students in particular that hold intersectional identities and experience, they really need to start making a commitment to increase uh, faculty of color hiring and, and mentorship opportunities and the support that's needed there. Because I think um, we have amazing white faculty that are allies and do great work too. But what the research says is that mentorship at kind of connection in their development happens when there's other faculty of color that hold some of their identities and experiences. And I think that would be one of the big takeaways, I think is, as maybe even the Crest Miner is gonna develop from a major into a department to, to actively use that as a platform to increase uh, tenure track lines to have faculty of color there on campus. I, I can't say what the data might be, but I also know that, um, that from what the students were saying, even from the RAR demands, is that they wanted to see that in, in particular too because they, they, they felt that like in, in reality, they're still part of an education where they don't see a part of themselves represented. I, I think the representation's huge, but I think also it's the consciousness as well. It's the, it's the asset-based framework and it's, the, it's that grounding. If, you, if you're grounded in ethnic studies as a transformative education, you're gonna come in with that training. Your, your job's not gonna just be to be an agent of the institution of academia. Your role's gonna be about how do you build the um, consciousness, the, the power, the voice of your students. You'll start to see your students as your community and, and build with them. All of these efforts to get the Crest Miner off the ground and then to, to build capacity into a major, I don't think we can discount the fact that this is all happening within the larger backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement really blossoming in the summer of 2020 and advocating for black people to be seen and heard and their lives valued 
And I think this really served as an inspiration to our students and also provided a moment that the administration was really listening and was amenable to these demands that had been happening for years and years to actually happen. I agree. I mean, in terms of, again, sort of what are, what are the ingredients to, to make something uh, come together? Um, you know, I, we've had a lot of conversations, we collectively, both on campus and to some extent um, as a nation in terms of the two pandemics, right? Um, and, and certainly um, a lot of the events, especially in, in spring of 2020, uh, continuing into fall, um, really, really, I think, pointed to the need to, to really be having these conversations. I mean, certainly there were many things that, that preceded um, that, that moment, but it was something about what was happening as far as the pandemic that I think people perhaps were more reflective um, about these issues than they had been in the past, or at least my perception is that more people were willing to engage in these conversations than I think had been the case before. Um, and so I, I think that recognition um, combined with, you know, the world is changing, um, you know, um, as an institution of higher education, we talk a lot about uh, the upcoming enrollment cliff. You know, we've been in a number of meetings and conversations about what that's going to mean. Um, and in a lot of ways, I hear that conversation as, as sort of one of panic. What are we going to do? Because, you know, students we have traditionally drawn and brought to university, you know, there's going to be fewer and fewer of them. And, you know, I, I'm somewhat of a, an optimist and try to see it sort of glass half empty, glass half full, which is that, well, that might be the case as far as more traditional students uh, or ones that we have traditionally brought to, to campus. But what about all of these other students, right? And as we think about sort of shifting demographics, um, if, we, if we think about this as um, not a moment of panic, but a potential opportunity, right? Um, what are going to be the things that are going to set us apart from peer institutions, um, both here in Colorado and you know, in other parts of the country? And I think a lot of that, um, part of the answer to that lies in, in having the kinds of courses, the kind providing the kind of education uh, Prof. Johnny mentioned having the mentors, the professors, you know, who, who reflect their own experiences, right, um, who they can see themselves in their histories, right, and, 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 and so forth. And so I, I think that that's going to be a really important conversation. And, and while I, I recognize why there might be some sense of panic about this, uh, you know, upcoming trench or cliff, um, I would hope that it, we could also think of it as a potential opportunity and really put the resources behind the kinds of things that will draw um, this increasingly diverse number of young people. Throughout collecting my interviews, there were two sentiments that continued throughout most of them. The first was feelings from students that change at the university takes a long time. And second, that the faculty who help them, which consists largely of faculty of color, who act as their mentors and supporters, get pushed out from the university. I want to know how Dr. Ramirez and Dr. Martinez will respond to students' questions and feelings. I, I hear that a lot and, and I completely agree. I mean, I, I know that for a lot of students, given that their time at DU, right, it's, for most of them, it's going to be four years. Um, the idea of, you know, 
uh, change coming slow is, is not always satisfying, which I understand. Um, the reality is, is institutional change is not only slow, it moves at a glacial pace. I mean, that, that's just kind of the reality. Um, and, and that, again, it's not always satisfying to say that, but, you know, I, I, I think back to, you know, a lot of the activism in the 1960s and, and many of the gains that were made. And, and in particular, um, I, I was thinking about um, when, when John Lewis, Congress member John Lewis passed away and, and how he talked about change, right? And, and how it was also glacially slow, but that, that made it no less important, right? And, and so I, I try to take those, those sentiments uh, to heart because uh, again, if I were a student, I, I would want things to happen right away. Um, and that's not the reality. And, and in a lot of ways, institutions are designed to not change quickly, right? So, so I don't know that I have a good response to students in that regard, um, other than to say, you know, in, in some cases, we ourselves might not directly benefit from the things that we're agitating for but hopefully that doesn't make them any less important to fight for because there will be others who will benefit, right? Um, some of the changes that we've seen, um, for example, the, the Crest Major, many of the students who were the ones to agitate for the minor in the first place, they're probably not gonna have the opportunity to major, right? Because it, it's going to take some time to build that program. Um, but there will be, there will be many students, right, generations of students who will hopefully be able to, to, uh, to major and to have that experience and to have that benefit. So, so uh, I guess that that is what I would probably tell students is that um, institutional change is hard and it is slow, but, um, you know, we, we just keep pushing. Again, like, you know, that the thing about institutions and everything, I, I would say to tell students is that's why their voice, their power, their activism, their resistance is so much needed because I don't think these, these um, how could I say, opportunities or kind of um, shifts towards acknowledging, you know, BIPOC folks, acknowledging ethnic studies, you know, uh, changing like the racist moniker, you know, like all those type of things that has happened hasn't came, is, has, has been a direct result because of student power, student and community power. So I would say that, you know, um, um, the institution will drag its feet by design to make those changes. But I think in that power, I think one could argue that that's why student power and activism escalates. That's why there's things like, you know, kind of like an occupation. That's why there's marches and protests to the chancellor's house. Uh, that's why there's a kind of like, you know, a shame organizing campaign, like a shame on the university for not doing these things and, and, and kind of getting really public about it so that the brand and everything, you know, so I think, I think it's like, almost like it's good to know, but at the same time, I think that the powers that students can say, hey, you know what, we're being affected. So we need to have folks move with a sense of urgency. Like, you know, things can't get lost in a committee. Um, we know that y'all are gonna drag your feet and try to get us to graduate. So within that time, you know, y'all better do something. And I'm sure the legacy and the seeds that get planted will get continued to be built upon by other students when that happens because you're building more leaders, you're building your base, you know, you're kind of getting the movement, um, continuing to have the movement um, um, build and move forward. I think also, you're like I told you already but like your name came up so much but then also as an example of a faculty member who kind of got pushed out 
mm-hmm. in that like you received a lot of stuff yeah yeah you know i think for me that the feeling of being pushed out i i think was was really kind of like a uh it was it was a weird mixed emotion kind of thing because as much as it, it my career you know being a postdoc and then being a visiting teaching assistant professor it would be such of an ideal situation to have me going from uh from from that process of being a postdoc where university community students would see my work and then being invited to stay on as a visiting teaching assistant professor because that work is being valued and the student evaluations and my colleagues and everyone telling me wow you're doing an amazing job and you're supporting students and mentoring them through their activism and um all these things could be things that you can research and build upon here at the university of denver the, the part that then like so that part of it's good that's like almost like being embraced and being welcomed and being valued in the community the part that was the mixed emotions or the part that was like like a hey like you know, I get it, you know, in terms of maybe my politics was uh, when I got the offer to take the current position that I have now, um, when I went back to the university to talk to my mentors, right, to talk to folks in leadership, right, you know, deans, you know, IRISE folks, um, you know, ODEI folks to let them know, okay, I have this offer, is there any way that I could present this to maybe even see if the university would be willing to counter offer or create a position for me to stay on, it was just like crickets. So I think that was like really the push out. The push out was more at times like people saying, hey, uh, never really, I think overtly, hey, we need to get this guy kind of like out of here because this person's a radical whatever. It was the silence. It was the crickets when I was still kind of really open to this idea of staying and starting my career there. Because, you know, I really learned in the time being there just the, the need you know, to be able to have someone with my training and with my story and, and my background and, and, and I feeling in my heart that I was making a good impact in, in, a, in a humble way. And we were just at the beginning of really building that, at the early stages of it. And, um, and that, that silence or, or lack of response and folks just kind of saying, you know what, Johnny, everything, you know, we do want to work with you. We actually need you here. And those are from my, you know, my allies and my mentors, but the university is not making that offer, will not create a line, you know, um, was a big, I guess, kind of disappointment in that sense too. And there, and 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 then speaking to other, you know, folks like like you had mentioned that have uh, been at DU for a measure of of some years will 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 would attest to the fact that they have trouble in actually retaining or bringing on faculty of color in particular. And I think like to put that in a really like perspective, like you had a whole petition to get you to stay. <laughs> like that's how big your impact was. Yeah. 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 No, I remember. And and then um, you know, again, it was kind of like, okay, now where, you know, where where would be the next step? Like, you know, do I do I meet with the chancellor? Do I meet with the board? Like I was all open to that to stand with yeah. students, right? But then it's like, then you go in and be like, you know what, Johnny, there, there's no one, no one wants to be with you. Like, yeah. like, you know, I'm at that time too, we had a, they were looking to replace uh, Dr. Frank Tewitt, one of my mentors, right? Uh, in part of uh, the diversity and equity and inclusion work too. So they were looking for that vice provost now. So they were all in their institutional kind of like changes too, and kind of like, uh, uh, what is it called? Um, reclassifying positions and moving things around. And then, so then at that point, it, it was almost like a, well, um, this, this, I guess, potentially what 
Prophet Johnny's talking about would go under this person's position. But this person isn't even hired yet and isn't even in this position yet. This, this position doesn't even have a budget yet. And, and, um, and yeah, I remember, you know, shout outs uh, on, on the previous episode too. I, I caught in episode three, the shout outs to Dr. Uh, uh, Daniel Kim. I mean, one thing that he had said too was, let's always remember that when, when students or communities demand for these tenure track positions, you're talking about bringing in folks that potentially could stay a career, a lifetime, 20 plus years, maybe even 30 years. And if they stay emeritus in their retirement, so you're talking about them making over a career, over a million dollars worth of it. And then that's when it's like where students and communities know, yes, our students are worth it. Yes, that kind of investment to bring in more faculty of color with consciousness that can mentor students and empower them to, to, to um, fight for an education that they, that they want for themselves and their community is important and valued. And um, I think, yeah, I think at the University of Denver though, that, that was very much uh, probably their biggest kind of like wall or resistance was, was that kind of maybe uh, a shift in power that the, that the students could start to feel that they really are equal, uh, equal stakeholders in, in, in making the changes at the university. Because I, I, I really do think, I mean, that was the reason why almost every meeting that students went to and everything was timed. They had, a, I forgot that one provost or, or dean that was there that would start to do all the talking and that students had to start to interrupt them because on the agenda, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost was like uh, <laughs> the University of Denver was just using almost like the playbook of, of dragging their feet and delaying. Uh, what the students were doing and, and waiting it out. So, I mean, my hope, just like Dr. Martinez said, like Lisa shared is with the new, with the new faculty hire, that's supposed to be a tenure track faculty. And it sounds like it's going to be in the department of sociology at the same time, this person has to be the director of this, F, uh, of the crest major. And if it's done right and the right folks are there, then from the major, it can escalate up to a department. And then that's when the real faculty lines come in, like where, where you actually are able to hire three, four, five individuals um, to come in. But, uh, but again, I, I just, I wonder about that. I wonder if we look at the past practice or we look at the record of DU, like, are they gonna allow that person or provide support and resources to that person to build a, a uh, Crest major and then have that actually evolve into a department um, I guess, you know, time will tell, or, or I would say student activism and the push and the resistance will end up guiding that effort. If it doesn't happen, then I'm sure students are going to hold this, this new person accountable or hold the university accountable to that as well. As stated, the next steps for Crest is the implementation of an upcoming major. Dr. Martinez offers an overview of what to expect in the upcoming weeks. So part of the work that Liz uh, did when she was a DEI and CREST director um, prior to going on sabbatical um, was working with our, our dean and our associate dean, uh, Danny McIntosh and Ingrid Chegg, where it wasn't just about building the minor, but then taking it many steps forward in, in, into a major. And I think a lot of that had to do with the very early success. You know, um, there are many minors in our college and, and also across campus, but just by virtue of the number of students who <laughs> declared a minor, I mean, with literally within weeks um, of, of it being official um, was quite astounding. And so I think they recognized the success of the program and, and wanted to build on that. And so part of what Liz uh, worked 
worked on was not only um, getting that commitment to turn it into a major, but then also tying that to recruitment efforts, um, where it's not just about pulling courses from existing ones. Um, since it's interdisciplinary, it draws from across the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, but a commitment to actually hire people um, into uh, the program. Um, and so as part of that process, uh, last year, I believe, um, the former dean announced um, you know, a call for proposals for departments who were interested in having um, a line where um, a person hired would not only have a home in their home department or discipline, but they would also have um, a role or connection in, in, in CRESS. And so the first of these hires um, was for the, the founding director, meaning the person who was going to basically build the minor into the major. Um, and so our department was one of several, I believe, that submitted. Um, and it turns out that we were, we were successful in that we were given approval uh, to make this hire. And so this past fall, I was part of a recruitment committee uh, chaired by our friend and colleague, Hava Gordon, uh, to essentially hire not only a colleague um, who would be a member of my department, but who would also uh, be tasked with, with building the major. And so um, we did a round of interviews. We had many great people uh, on campus. Uh, and we ultimately made um, an offer. And I believe it's very, very close to being official. Um, I think it's just a matter of getting some approvals at very high levels at DU. Um, but uh, I believe uh, pretty shortly here, there will hopefully be an announcement and um, the person will be on campus in May. And I'm hoping to have an opportunity to uh, introduce them to uh, the campus community, to our CRESS affiliates, and of course to students. Um, you know, I, I really want students to be a part of, of their welcome to campus. So I can't reveal the name yet, unfortunately. I really wish I could, um, but, but it's, it's coming soon. Thank you for listening to Legacy Part 4. Legacy Part 5 consists of the closing notes from each of my interviews with students. For some, I asked what sustains them through the fight, what they wished that they had known, or what they would most like to share with you. To find out what this is, please listen to Legacy Part 5. Thank you for listening to The Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. For Rage opportunities and updates, be sure to follow our social media pages. You can find us at The Rage Podcast, all one word, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, you're listening to The Rage Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode, and we'll catch you next time.